411-LIVE. Where you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world. 411-LIVE. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your girl. 411-LIVE. COVID-19 has changed the way we do things. When we go to the grocery store, we put on our mask. Some of us put on gloves. And at some grocery stores, they actually take your temperature to make sure that you don't have a fever. As much as it has affected us, it does not compare to the challenges that healthcare workers are experiencing in the hospital settings, especially. And that's why we're going to talk about that. Hello, everyone. This is the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. I'm Beverly Taylor. We're talking about coronavirus or COVID-19 and healthcare workers in the hospital setting. And I have some really special guests joining me right now, uh, practicing social distancing, of course. So we're doing it through Zoom. Dr. Brady McIntosh, he is a physician within the emergency room, in the emergency department, and Dr. Jane Wainaina, and she specializes in infectious diseases. And they both come from Freighter Hospital, the Medical College of Wisconsin. So thank you very much for joining me because I know that, you know, this may be family time. I'm not sure you guys may be off work, are you? Yeah, for the day. For the day. Mm -hmm. How about you? Okay, so you are giving up some of your family time to join us today. So I I really appreciate it. And I really want to say that um, a big thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. I know that you guys got in the field to help other people, but uh, you're taking a risk. And we really appreciate it. And thank you for all that you do. So let's get started. Let's talk about where we are right now. Uh, Dr. McIntosh, what are you seeing? Because you're in the emergency room and you kind of get a pulse of people coming in. What's happening now? Uh, Sure. First, Beverly, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, At the beginning of the pandemic, we were seeing a lot of people uh, presenting with infectious complaints that were concerning for COVID-19. But overall, our other volumes of patients were down quite a bit. Um, people with other complaints that commonly came to the emergency department, like chest pain and abdominal pain, uh, were trying to distance themselves from the hospital for fear of catching the disease if they came. Um, and with people staying home, there were less traffic accidents and less people complaining for traumatic complaints. Uh, over the past few weeks, though, we've seen a pretty steady increase in the number of patients that are coming in for the more common complaints. Uh, in addition to a pretty steady presentation of people coming in for the infectious complaints as well. So while our volumes of patients uh, at our hospital uh, who are presenting with infectious complaints stays pretty steady, the people that uh, were staying home and uh, trying to avoid the hospital are starting to come back out and our volumes are really starting to increase recently. Got you. Uh, The people who are coming in presenting with potential uh, COVID-19, what's the age group? It's uh, all over the place. Uh, there's drastic uh, age swings from the very young. I think uh, you know at, at uh, our emergency department we only see adult patients, um, but everybody from 18 years old to uh, in the 80s and 90s, um, all demographics uh, from all backgrounds, every age group is represented by this disease. Wow. Have you seen any of this? And it's been in the news a lot. It's a uh, inflammation. 
uh, I think they call it uh, inflammatory syndrome that's presenting in children that they think might be related to COVID-19? Yeah, in our emergency department, we only see adults uh, at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. Uh, Mm -hmm. They manage those patients primarily. Uh, So I personally haven't seen that, um, but that is starting to crop up in the areas where uh, there is a higher disease burden, and we're seeing that uh, that trend in pediatric patients as well. That is scary. Uh, Dr. Winona, now, I get the, you're dealing with infectious diseases. Um, you specialize in, um, in that. Um, so are you seeing the patients more of, you know, they've come into the emergency room, And some of them are told to go home and, you know, stay at home, self-isolate. But the really, really sick ones, are those the ones that you normally see and help other clinicians, um, you know, help? Um, So thank you again for having me uh, on this podcast. The patients that we are seeing and actively involved in are the ones in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So those are the ones who would be moderately to severely ill. So admitted into the hospital and on the hospital floors or in the intensive care unit. Uh, Those are the ones that we are partnering with our inpatient um, medicine specialist or our hospitalist or with our pulmonary and critical care physicians in the ICUs to take care of. So where are we as far as treatment? Because what I understand, there's not a whole lot out there yet. Of course, we don't have a vaccine. And um, what's working or what can you do? Um, So you're right. We don't know what truly works for this. um, And we don't have a cure that we can put forth and say we are definite that this is the way to go. Um, But we've been learning along the way. When we started, when the pandemic hit uh, Wisconsin somewhere in the middle of March, uh, one of my roles was to evaluate what possible treatments were available and what we should be using. Fortunately, I did not have um, inpatient assignment and was able to focus on that along with my team of pharmacists. And the data that we were seeing, mostly coming out of China at that time, suggested that hydroxychloroquine was probably the most promising treatment out of a a bunch of other things that had been tried, um, along with experience from the previous SARS virus from 2003 and MERS or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus uh, around 2009. Um, So we tried that. um, And followed the literature as it came out at a very furious rate. None of it was very convincing. And we noticed that our hospitalists uh, taking care of the patients on the floors quit using it in the middle of April. Okay. Because they didn't find that it seemed to be helpful, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Our group, the infectious disease team and the antimicrobial stewardship team came to that conclusion probably a week after that. which was a very interesting observation. Now, just to be clear, this is the drug that the president said that he's taking, right? You are correct. Okay. So that one, you kind of scratch that off the list and you go to what? Um, What we found was useful was just best supportive care. Um, And that's a term we're using. 
um, supporting patients' oxygenation and ventilation. So giving them supplemental oxygen by according to what they need, whether it's by a mask or nasal cannula or some of our other more invasive measures that, like a ventilator. Um, one of the complications of um, COVID-19 is respiratory failure because they develop a lung inflammation process that's referred to as acute respiratory distress syndrome. And the way that's traditionally treated because there are other uh, causes of acute, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, um, one of the things that's done is to nurse patients in prone position, meaning lying on their bellies. And so we started doing that in the ICU. And one of our brilliant ICU uh, physicians said, why don't we start doing this preemptively on the floor and see if we can prevent patients from progressing to where they need to be on a ventilator uh, or on other mechanical uh, respiratory support. And we have found that to be really useful. Wow. We think spared many people from get, going to the ICU and developing advanced respiratory failure. So, um, Dr. McIntosh, is this, so when they come into the emergency room and they're, uh, you know, they have symptoms, but it's not to the point where they need to be hospitalized. I mean, is this some, some kind of advice that you would give them, you know, try to get in the position that's most comfortable for you when you're at home? You know, the um. You know, Beverly, I think if we're talking about uh, proning patients or lying them on their stomachs, we're probably at a point where those patients need to be hospitalized. Okay. Um, if they're requiring supplemental oxygen or they're significantly short of breath when they get up and walk around and they can't perform the, the active daily, uh, activities of daily living that they do at home, those are all patients that we're fortunate enough to have room in our hospital to admit to the hospital for now. Um, if we were to experience a surge like they had in Seattle or New York City or New Orleans, we may get to the point where we're trying different strategies of supplemental oxygenation at home or different strategies to keep people from uh, needing to be admitted to the hospital. But if they're at the point now where they need to lie on their stomachs to breathe comfortably and to keep their oxygen saturations normally, they have to be in the hospital. Gotcha. Let's talk about, uh, you, you know, we talk about the numbers. They come out every day. Uh, we have so many cases. We have so many deaths in the state, in the county. Um, when they come to the hospital and they present some symptoms, but not to the level that you were talking about where they need to be hospitalized, you tell them what to do. You give them advice and you send them home to self-isolate, to take care of themselves. But you know, we're talking about the cases. What I'm driving at is, could it be that the numbers that we're getting are much lower than what's real, than the reality? Because you're not testing all of those people, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And especially in the early stages of this, uh, of this health crisis, when we didn't have the capability of testing patients, mm -hmm. Um, we've been really fortunate recently to have the capability of our hospital to be able to test everybody that we feel needs a test. Um, but definitely in the early stages when we didn't have that capability, uh, there are far more cases out there than we know. And uh, we're, we're not going to ever know the true number of the people that have been affected by this disease. But there's no doubt that it's higher than what's, uh, than what's reported and what we're feeling right now. 
Right. And let's talk about the, the testing, because we've seen long lines of people going to uh, areas where they are doing the, the free testing and people can come even if they are asymptomatic. We were talking earlier, Dr. McIntosh, about the testing. And uh, Dr. Wainaina, you jump in too. Um, those, we're, we're getting false negatives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, there's no test that's 100% sensitive for any disease. Um, and even if you have a negative test, uh, if you come to our emergency department and you have all the symptoms and you're manifesting um, some of the lab abnormalities or the x-ray findings that we're seeing of this disease, we will treat you like you have it, even if your test is negative. Because we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Dr. Mac, uh, Dr. Winona. Because you're, you, when I look at you and hear what you do, I think of you kind of that, that researcher, that investigator, that medical investigator uh, looking for, you know, treatment and different things. Um, I'm sure that you are inundated looking for new information to help come up with some ideas of what to do with different patients because, you know, you can have a patient that says, this patient has coronavirus, but every patient is different, right? That's that's true. So um, our approach along the way has been to uh, really try and keep abreast of the literature and the studies as they've come out and uh, match that to what we're seeing in patients, at least from a treatment standpoint. Um, so when we look at a study, um, we then look at are the people they were studying similar to who we are seeing. So can we apply these findings to these patients? Um, And ultimately, where things have gone, because we have no known treatment, everything is really investigational. And so we're trying to be really careful with tracking our patient outcomes. Um, And so uh, I and my infectious disease colleagues have partnered with multiple groups within or multiple specialties within our hospital. Our hospitalists are pulmonary critical care doc- doctors, our hematologists, oncologists, um, to try and figure out how, how do we trial these uh, medications that are coming out? What opportunities do we take advantage of um, as we at the same time try and take care of uh, medication, uh, take care of our patients? Um, so we have some trials going on. Um, we're looking at convalescent plasma, mm-hmm. and that's basically taking plasma, which is the antibody-rich component of blood, uh, from patients who have had COVID-19 and giving it to patients who have COVID-19 currently um, with the thought that the antibodies, giving them that antibody infusion will help them fight the virus and its uh, effects. Um, We're also looking at some antiviral medications. Remdesivir uh, has been in the news. That's the one that was uh, in a big study and showed some potential benefit. Um, Looked like it led to quicker recovery in some of the patients and maybe reduced the rate of death. So we're studying that as well. It was given emergency use authorization, which means it has some promise, let's make it available. Uh, that's not equivalent to FDA approval. Gotcha. 
We're making it available in the hope that um, it will help patients and then watching those patients very carefully to make sure that um, it's safe and it's doing what we're hoping that uh, it will do. Yeah, I remember Dr. Fauci talking about that drug. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the potential second wave and much more. So stay with us. You are listening to the 411 Live Real People, Real Talk. Social distancing tip Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the 411 Live. We were talking about the coronavirus and healthcare workers in the hospital settings, what they're seeing. Um, let's talk about this second wave. Is this... Um, a real concern to you guys? Do you think that this is going to happen and we're going to see a, another spike? Uh, yeah, I think it's a definitely a legitimate possibility. And we should be prepared to see our numbers increase as we relax our social distancing uh, recommendations and people start venturing out of their homes and interacting with one another. You know, the two things that we've, uh, we've seen pretty steadily that have improved uh, our efforts in flattening the curve and reducing the number of infections are stay-at-home orders and people wearing masks in public. Um, and the, the heartening thing for me is that it seems like from the polling that I've seen, the vast majority of people in our country are supportive of that and are willing to follow that advice. Um, the the disheartening and disappointing thing to me is seeing so many people um, not following that advice, uh, interacting with each other in public without masks, you know, uh, not doing the appropriate social distancing. So um, I think a lot of our uh, concerns for a second surge uh, in infection um, comes from people not following the advice of the, of the scientists and the medical personnel uh, with regard to uh, how to try to keep from communicating this disease to each other. And speaking of that, um, I want to get your reaction to you. Like when the state Supreme Court said the stay in, at home order, you know, null and void, uh, and people rushed to the bars and some were sitting close together, no protection. Uh, people are getting out. Things are opening up quickly in some areas. What has your reaction? Dr. McIntosh, you mentioned it. Dr. Wainaina, what was your reaction to that? I did not think that was a wise decision at the risk of, you know, being somewhat politically incorrect. Um, I think uh, it was reasonable to have a staged opening, tracking our disease numbers, our hospitalizations and our recoveries, deaths and so on, um, and following the benchmarks 
to guide how we open, where we open. Um, what we needed to do was dial up and not flip a switch. And I'm concerned that what happened with the Supreme Court decision was a switch was flipped. And um, the truth is that with having to stay at home and isolate and stay isolated, um, there's a certain psychological burden to that, certain psychological trauma. So there's a lot of people who are just itching to get out and, mm -hmm. you know, the smallest crack in the door allowed them to get out. Um, and um, it's my hope that that was just, you know, for a little bit of relief and then they'll think a little more seriously about what does, does this mean? What does this potentially mean for me and for my neighbor and for my elderly parents, for instance? Um, but we'll see. I'm, I'm fairly certain we'll see a second wave and maybe a third wave mm -hmm. and fourth wave. When we look at the previous coronaviruses, they did not go away in a season. They stretched out over a year or two, depending on which one we are talking about, so the first SARS or MERS. Um, and if you look at our numbers in Wisconsin, they've started going up again. Some of that is because we're testing more, which is a good thing. That gives us a sense of how much of the virus we have. Um, which is a better picture than we had at the beginning when we didn't have the capacity to test as many. Um, but that still means there's potential for people to get seriously ill. Um, I would agree with Dr. McIntosh. And then if you look at the numbers, what really helped those numbers begin to come down was the stay-at-home orders, the social distancing, or what my preferred term is physical distancing, mm -hmm. because we should still stay socially connected. Um, and then the masks that protect us from one another. Um, so I, I worry that dropping all of that uh, all of a sudden will accelerate uh, time to the next waves. Right, right. And you know, and I, I worry about, um, you know, with a second wave, third, third, fourth, that you said there's the potential for, the burden on healthcare workers. Because, you know, you're you're doing it and you're seeing some really heartbreaking things where uh, people are having to maybe say goodbye to their loved ones through uh, a visual mean, you know, FaceTime or something like that or Zoom or something like that. Uh, so I, I imagine that you are dealing with really, really heartbreaking stories. So I just wonder how you guys are doing. Um. It's it's tough. Uh, I I gotta be honest, Beverly. It's uh, it's it can be mentally and physically exhausting. Um, not just uh, taking care of sick patients when they come into the emergency department, but just being constantly vigilant. Um, having to decontaminate when I get home. The uh, the constant concern of of bringing something home and being asymptomatic and spreading it to my family, my kids, and my uh, my wife. Um, that would uh, that would be devastating for me. So it's it's tough. But um, on the other hand, um, this is uh, really fulfilling uh, for me because the reason that I and and all of my partners and all the people who work in the emergency department and the hospital in general, you know, our nurses, our respiratory therapists, our techs, um, everybody that comes to work uh, in our hospital and the emergency department, we wanted to get into this business to take care of sick patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is one of the biggest uh, health challenges in our time. And uh, I can say 
uh, without a doubt and without exception, the people that I work with have risen to that challenge. Um, and uh, on the one hand, it's it's uh, you know frustrating and exhausting, but on the other hand, it's really exciting and encouraging to see people come together and work as hard as they do to try to take care of people when they need it. And Dr. Wynonna, like him, you have young children at home too, right? I do. And um, like Dr. McIntosh, I worry about taking something home um, when I have inpatient assignments. So going to work and going home is different. You know, I now think about what I'm wearing, whether it's going to go into the house or not, um, how I'm going to do the laundry. Um, do I have to separate, you know, what am I separating out? Um, I'm wearing, when I'm on inpatient assignment, I now switch to wearing hospital scrubs, which I never did before. Um, so a lot has changed as far as uh, that is concerned. And um, when I think about what's happening with the children with the uh, inflammatory syndrome that they're seeing, it's really very scary, um, you know, that a child can go from healthy to gravely ill and near death from this uh, virus that I might unknowingly take home. Um, so yes, life's very different. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, Dr. McIntosh, something just uh, popped in my head. When folks are coming to, through the emergency room and they have symptoms, but they're not so severe that they need to be hospitalized, and you um, are telling them to go home, self-isolate, because, you know, they potentially have it and they can give it to somebody else. And they tell you they don't have a home to go to. Are you seeing any of that? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the, uh, the pathophysiology of the disease and the way that it's transmitted really uh, um, makes our homeless population and our jail population and people that are living in close quarters and can't uh, self-isolate from the disease uh, very vulnerable to this problem. Um, and I know that there are some initiatives uh, within the city to try to house these folks and try to keep them from spreading the disease amongst those communities. And I think that's outstanding. Um, it's really impressive to see that when it works. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't know that we have the resources and the capacity to reach everyone that's involved. So I think those communities uh, that are less fortunate and uh, are without a home or the folks in the prison population, uh, people who can't uh, socially distance, self-isolate. Um, and we're seeing that bear out in the numbers. Those those places and those uh, communities of people are really hot spots for spread of the disease. You know, I've asked you guys a, a bunch of questions and I could ask you so many more, uh, but I just wonder uh, What's on your mind? Is there something that you would really like the public to know or do? Go ahead, Dr. Winnie. All right. Um, the message that I would like to get out there is that physical distancing uh, worked. The stay-at-home order worked. We don't expect people to stay at home forever because we need to open our economy. We don't want people to die from other reasons. Um, but they worked. So maintain that physical distance in that uh, uh, washing hands, you know, decontaminating and um, sanitizing your surfaces because it protects everyone. 
if we drop all those precautions, we will probably regress. So keep at it. We can do this. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. Dr. McIntosh? Yeah, I think the big message that I would like to share is uh, that even if you're concerned about coming to the hospital um, and you are worried that you may contract the disease if you come to the emergency department, if you are worried that you have uh, a medical illness or a, a medical emergency, please come to the emergency department. We are doing everything that we can to try to keep it safe and keep it sterilized so that we will not spread infection from person to person. But we're seeing uh, anecdotally a lot of stories about people staying home with heart attacks and appendicitis coming in too late to have surgery and strokes that are beyond our capability of treating it. Um, and I think one of the there's there's been a lot of um, a lot of mishandling of information from our top level officials, I think, in this. And one of the things uh, that I was most disappointed in seeing are the commercials where they tell people not to come to the emergency department and to call their physician. A lot of the people that we see in the emergency department don't have a primary care physician. They don't have somebody that they can call for advice. So if you are worried that you have a medical emergency, if you have severe chest pain or abdominal pain, if you're having trouble breathing or you're vomiting and you can't keep food or fluids down, please come to the emergency department so that we can see you and take care of you. Good advice. Good advice. Um, your colleagues and you, because you guys, you're not complaining. You're doing this and you're doing it day after day. You're sacrificing, you, you, you know, you're making all these precautions to protect your your family members and you don't complain. And I imagine most of your health, your colleagues don't complain either. Well, like Dr. McIntosh said earlier, we all got into this because we want to help. And um, I think it's safe to say we truly are committed to what we do. We truly are committed to patient care and really want to do the best that we can. If someone does raise any concerns, usually it has to do with patient care. Um, and it might be because they notice that, you know, maybe we need to adjust how we are approaching PPE and, you know, could that be considered? Um, but I would agree, people are, uh, in a sense, running towards danger, trying to figure out how they can help, uh, trying to figure out where in this pandemic do they fit? Um, how can they best support our collective effort? Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like you have the protective gear now that you need? Uh, currently at our hospital, we we have uh, masks and gloves uh, and gowns when we need them to treat the patients that we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't heard any um, information as far as how uh, long that supply is going to last uh, or anything to uh, to make me think that it will run out. Uh, so I would say that currently we have the, the equipment that we need, but um, I know it's probably a, a situation that's very fluid and uh, donations uh, and uh, resources and support uh, in addition to what we have is probably uh, still needed and very helpful. That's good to there's know. Been, mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, there's been a constant effort uh, at the hospital to ensure that we have the PPE that we need. Um, there's been a lot of creative thinking about where to source it, 
but also making sure what we source actually works um, the way it's supposed to, that we're not getting substandard poor quality um, equipment. Yeah, that's out that there too, isn't it? Yeah. And if we do get poor quality equipment, then that's set aside and not used or repurposed in a different way. Um, So we have adequate supplies, but there is a constant focus on what do we have, thinking ahead to what do we need and how can we stay ahead of that supply so that we're not putting people in jeopardy. I certainly hope that you always have what you need. And if you don't, you know, raise the red flag because people out in the community, you know, they will start pounding the drums for you to get those things because it saves lives and saves your lives. And we want to protect you. Listen, thank you so much again for sharing part of your family time, your home time. And I know, Dr. McIntosh, you just, you know, pulled a long all-nighter and you're tired so thank you guys for joining me i really really appreciate it and i appreciate all the information that you have given us and as this thing goes on if we go into a second wave or something we may be calling you up again and saying will you please join us and i hope you will so i have really enjoyed it and thank you for the work that you do thank you for my having pleasure me. oh thank you thanks very much sure thing And thank you for joining us for another episode of the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. We are a nonprofit organization, so if you are so inclined to help us continue our efforts, please go to our website, the411live.org. And you can also see previous podcasts on any podcast platform that you uh, prefer. You can also find us on YouTube. And if you go to YouTube, please subscribe. But until next time, this is the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. I'm Beverly Taylor.